Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program was recorded in front of our live community audience at St. Anne's Center for Intergenerational Care, Bucyrus Campus in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This May 2019 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation focusing on human papillomavirus, or HPV, and examining the link between HPV and cervical cancer. Our guest presenter is Dr. Denise Uyar, Associate Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Division of Gynecology Oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Here now is Dr. Denise Uyar. Thank you, hello. So today we were gonna talk about the human papillomavirus, and as some of you may know, but I'll start way at the beginning, it's a sexually transmitted disease. It is a very common, actually more common than HSV or herpes or chlamydia or gonorrhea, but it's not as talked about as much or advertised as much. The human papillomavirus, more than 80% of the population is infected with this virus by age 50, and that's men and women. So if you just think about, there's 300 and some odd million people in our country, and that's 80% of that will have seen this virus. It is a very common pathogen. It is just not brought up as much and is not thought to be as much of an issue. But for a subset of population, it's a really difficult virus to manage. One's immune system is not able to manage it. So we'll focus first on females and then I'll broaden it up a bit. So for women, if you say that about 80% of women by the age of 50 will have seen this virus, about 300,000 women have abnormal pap smears in a year of high-grade pap smears. And then if we say about 12, 13,000 women have cervical cancer annually, and about four to 5,000 women die of cervical cancer. So you could see the big picture of the viral infection and I get that it kind of filters down in a smaller picture of actual malignancy. But if you think of all the people that have abnormal pap smears, because that's not a small thing, you have to leave work, you have to miss time, you have to go to more appointments than the average person, it's very disruptive. Then you think of the broader picture. If I say 300,000 have the high grade, there's still maybe several hundred thousand that have the lower grade or kind of like the riffraff. So it still has a very large impact. The women that this abnormality affects is also a very different population for us as I'm a GYN oncologist. Typically the cancers that we see affect women that are older or in the menopause, but this affects women that are premenopausal, they are childbearing. You know, it can be a really different population for us and that impact is felt even more so. Providing for families, they're providing for children, they are wage earners. And so having abnormalities in the PAPs or ultimately cancer is pretty devastating, more devastating than the average abnormalities. It was in the 1950s that Dr. Papanikolaou developed the pap smear. So we had a way of screening for cervical cancer, a non-invasive way of screening, which was amazing. He saw the first cancer cells on a slide and he was able to navigate the system and create a screening device. Pap smears could be used then to maybe catch people before cancer. It was learned that there was a period of time that you had abnormal before cancer and that's actually why there can be screening tests. If you don't have any time and cancer just develops out of nowhere, then there's no screen for it. 
ovary cancer has no screen because we don't understand the mechanism and there's not a precancer known before ovary cancer. So that's why that cancer is diagnosed late. People are more advanced. Cervix cancer has the potential of being diagnosed early. A, you have a long period of time for when you can have the infection to when you get cancer. It's thought that people mostly will get this in viral exposure in their 20s. But when they get cancer is 20 years later. So in their 40s to 50s, they could have cancer. So there's a lot of time there to see a doctor, to get a screen, to catch something, and hopefully treat it. So that makes it even sadder for me in the field that I'm in that we have so many women still dying of this disease. You have a pap smear, you have a screen, you have a way to catch it, you have a long time to catch it, and yet people still don't get enough chance to have that done and they still present with not only cancer but advanced cancer. You see people with stage three and stage four cancer, that's cancer that's left the cervix and gone other places. So that's kind of a tragedy for me personally. You know, I just can't stand to see it. So it was in the 50s that he developed that, and then cervical cancer did decrease, but it leveled out. So there's not been much change in it recently. So it took decades for us to understand it more. It didn't happen on its own. It happened with a lot of minds together to figure it out. But in the 90s, it was confirmed that human papillomavirus was the causative factor of cervical cancer, that a viral infection caused cancer. We don't see that that often. You know, we see it in hepatitis. There is Epstein-Barr, that's a viral infection related to cancer, and now HPV related to a cancer. But that is not typically the mechanism of cancer. But this virus, because it's so common, is accounted for a significant portion of cancers globally. So maybe in the States, it's not such a big deal because we have resources and we have the ability and if I say there's only 12,000 cases of cancer, this is not a very common cancer for the resource world. But in non-resource countries, cervical cancer globally accounts for 500,000 cases of cancer. So half a million cases of cancer. And HPV, which I will talk about more, I wanted to focus on the women first, but I'll broaden it out now. It was then learned later, HPV is not just a cervical cancer causative factor it actually causes several other cancers. So its infection can be in the anogenital area, if you think of your bottom. <laughs> There's the anus, the vulva, the vagina, and for men, anal cancer, penile cancer. And then it was also learned that it was responsible probably in about 70% of oral pharyngeal cancers. So now it's men and women. Now in the States, if you broaden it out, it's probably over 30,000, 40,000 cancers a year because it's males and females now. So if you just take the corner of cervical cancer, which is where it started being kind of the focus, but as we learned more about it, you could see the big picture that there's actually far more cancers now that HPV is related to. And what they didn't realize or what they didn't know was coming was that now oral pharyngeal cancer is more common than cervical cancer. And actually that disproportionately affects men more than women. But now it's known that oral pharyngeal cancer eclipsed cervical cancer in the number of cases. And that also can be a younger person's cancer, oral pharyngeal cancer, very devastating. So if you take all those findings together, and then the pre-cancer part, the amount of money that it takes to manage this virus is staggering. There's probably over a billion dollars spent on managing abnormal pap smears and things like that. It's a staggering amount of money.
And it's one that we don't actually have. Like, that's not a luxury that we have. We used to pap people all the time, very young, and we used to do a lot of procedures. But if you're in care right now, you'll notice that, A, we don't start till 21, and B, if you have pap tests, and now this new test that they do with it, the human papillomavirus, they can test to see if the virus is present. If you're negative for that, you have less than a 0.5% chance of getting cancer in that next year. So they now actually space it out. We don't do exams and pap smears every year. The whole paradigm of women's health, as far as gynecologic health, has changed. That mantra of the annual exam and the pap smear is no longer present. Now you go to the doctor, well, A, you have to have the pap smear up to date. So as long as you've had a series of normal paps and the two together allows you to go every five years. Some places still just do the cytology, just the regular pap smear without the viral test, and then you could only go every three years. But the women's health exam is now a series of really taking a good history. And then if someone has a gynecologic complaint, they will then maybe get a focused exam. But we aren't doing just gynecologic exams on well people anymore. It's definitely changed. If you're due for pap, that's fine. But if not, they might not do it. You'll notice that. When you talked about burden of cost with an abnormal Mm -hmm. Has treatment started at that point? Trying to take into account treatment for that and then the loss of revenue from work. And that's again another phase of research that's helped. When you take into account what it costs to treat someone, you also take into account what they lost from their job. So it's an inordinate amount of money for several reasons. Again, it's like a different population for us, but it's one that we're very sensitive to because they are working. They are caregivers, they are rearing their children. Women we've seen just delivered a baby and could have an abnormality or cancer. I mean, that is just a really separate set of people for us. So if you have an abnormal pap smear, just to go down the path of what that would take to treat, it's usually you come back in a year. Depending on what the abnormality is, you may not go directly to like the focused exam and biopsies. The cytology, because we said there's two tests now, right? The cytology is when you get the cells from the cervix and the virus type is when they do a special test on the cells and check to see if the virus is present. So depending on what the abnormality is, you might have to return in a year and just do it again, and that's fine. If it persists as abnormal and the virus is present, you go to what's called colposcopy. And colposcopy is a focused exam of the cervix. So it's just like your female exam, but a little bit longer, unfortunately, and with a microscope. And then they take biopsies. So then from the biopsies, you get a diagnosis. The pap smear doesn't tell you a diagnosis. It just raises the alarm. The pap smear is the screening test. Screening tests are not diagnostic tests. Screening tests are kind of saying, I've got something here, and I need more evaluation. And then diagnostic test is where you do colposcopy and biopsy. So if you take the biopsy and there's abnormality on that, you may do what's called a bigger biopsy or a LEAP procedure to excise a portion of the cervix. So that's another visit, and it's an outpatient procedure. And then if that is okay, meaning they excise the area and the edges are all okay, you can go to follow up back to a year. Clear the hurdle of several years normal, you can go back out to every three or every five. If you have this virus, and we have so many people that could have the viral infection, but very few get cancer. Most people deal with it. Most people successfully deal with the virus, and then they don't have a future problem. So why we raise the age to 21 is because in the teen years and in the early 20s, you can't swing a stick without hitting somebody that has a virus. So you know you clear that hurdle. If you get to your 30s and you still have the virus, that's a problem because you should have gotten rid of it. 
most people can get rid of this virus or manage it, meaning their immune system can handle it and keep it in check, in about two years. So that's why you don't also immediately go down to colposcopy and go down to the bigger biopsy. You don't know where you caught them in the infection. So if you catch somebody in the infection, you give them a little chance, their immune system might work just fine, and then on the other side of it, they will have managed the virus and their pap will return to normal on their own. We used to do a lot more procedures, but on younger women, that's not benign because the cervix, even though it seems like not so big of a deal, it's a very important role is for birth. So it helps keep infections out. It helps keep someone from going in preterm labor. It keeps a pregnancy in longer, and longer pregnancies are better for the fetus. So it has a special role. You don't regenerate the cervix. The cervix is about four centimeters long. Those bigger biopsies are about a centimeter. So you lose length, so you can't grow that back. It's not benign to do interventions. So you give somebody a chance, but if they don't clear it, if there's somebody in their 30s and 40s that has the virus, like an abnormal pap with the virus present, that is a person that you need to pay attention to. The younger ones, you know, maybe they just started having intercourse, and so once you have partners, you know, you can get exposed to the virus, so you might just have a brand new infection. But you should be able to handle it in a couple years. And if it gets to a couple years and you haven't handled it, that's a person that could have a problem with handling the virus. Their own immune system might have a problem with handling the virus. Because the problem is not just the HPV infection or else everybody would have cervical cancer, right? It's the persistence of it. It's when it hangs out for a while. So if you can't manage it with your own immune system, that is a person that's at risk for developing cancer down the line because it takes that long to develop cancer. So if your immune system is not managing it, and it hangs out along, it slowly starts to integrate into the cells. They've watched it, like the natural history of it in the labs, they could see it integrates into the DNA of cells and starts to like flip switches that shouldn't be flipped. And those cells don't die regularly and they grow differently. How often should one have an HPV along with a pad? So after age 30, it is recommended that they have HPV with the pap. So before age 30, you know you're gonna find it in everybody. So after age 30, it's recommended to do what's called co-testing, kind of fancier new term. Cytology just by itself is just that, but when you do co-testing, you're doing cytology and testing for the virus. So people that persist to have the virus in their 30s, usually they are shunted down the path of going to colposcopy, getting the biopsy, doing other things, because they should have managed it. And there still isn't a point where you would start treating with any kind of medication? There isn't a medication. There is not a medication to treat this virus for active infection, because I will talk about the medication to prevent. There is a medication to prevent. So if you have an active infection, there is no novel treatment currently approved. So there's a preventative vaccine, but research now is looking at a therapeutic vaccine. So this preventative vaccine is not meant to treat someone with an infection. It's meant to prevent. So it's given before. So they did lots of studies on this vaccine to see when was the best time to give it because it's known that you know, the immune system works better if you see it through the vaccine first versus seeing it through exposure with intercourse. So epidemiologically, they looked at it and it turns out, just because the way things go, people have intercourse young. <laughs> so you have to have the vaccine pretty early. And where the optimal ages or the age that the FDA approved was 11 and 12. So you really get people early. 
because people have intercourse young. So it's approved from ages 9 to 26 for men and women. And it was approved in 2006. In the 50s, there was a pap smear for screening. In the 90s, they figured out that it was human papillomavirus, or HPV. And in 2006, so a couple decades later, they figured out a vaccine, which is amazing. I mean, if you look at the impact that it could have, that's amazing. So if you look at that timeline, that should, for all intents and purposes, be a success story. But it is not yet a success story because we have still many cases of cancer. So the vaccine was approved in 2006, and the studies have shown, because we, said, we just said that cancer takes a long time to develop. So the studies have shown that it is already reducing the human papillomavirus prevalence in the states, like it did in other countries. What we don't know yet is, does it continue on to prevent cancer? Because right? you want to have that much time to see. We were not an early adopter country. We were a late adopter country which is basically part of our problem with a lot of things, I guess. But like in Australia and in Sweden and in other countries where they mandated the vaccine, where they made it part of school, they've had very good success. Their viral types are very low. They're getting lower and lower. We were pretty late adopters, and we don't have 100% vaccination coverage. The CDC actually wanted, by 2020, 80% of the population vaccinated. We are not actually going to make it. We are probably nationally at about 50%, and that's 50% completion of one vaccine. So there's many hurdles for getting vaccines completed, but HPV is a three vaccine, successive vaccinations completed within six months if you're after 15, but only two if you're before age 15. And that started with a bivalent, just the kind of two biggest types of HPV, um, 16 and 18, which are probably responsible for about 75, 80% of our cervical cancers. And then there was a four that was 16, 18, 6, and 11. So that covered cervical cancers. And then condyloma or warts, that's also an HPV virus. So HPV has probably 100 viral types. There are about 14 that are carcinogenic, meaning they are known to be related or associated with cancer. And then there's a bunch that are kind of non-carcinogenic, but definitely cause problems, condyloma or warts being one of them. So they took the most common types and they put it into the four. And now the current vaccine that's available is nine. So it's seven carcinogenic types and then two of the ones that cause condyloma or warts. So that's the only one you can get now in the States is the nine. So if you started with another one, you finish with the nine. That's just how that goes now because the others aren't available anymore. So it should be a big success story, but there's been hesitancy to take this vaccine. And vaccine hesitancy is a big problem. The WHO has identified that as one of the top 10 concerns right now for them, which is saying a lot. Because vaccines are out there and they are a public health success and they are underutilized. And the cost that it takes when you miss somebody on the other end, really that gap is, you know, it's huge. Where the vaccine itself, I mean, it's not cheap, although I must say there is a vaccine for children's program that covers children. Granted, if I say they're up to age 26, there's going to be some people that do have to pay something out of pocket. They are no longer children when they're 26. I get that there is cost involved, but still to prevent a cancer, if we said we could prevent colon cancer or breast cancer, people would line up. 
but for some reason this has been met with a lot of hesitancy and part of it has been thought of maybe they didn't roll it out properly because they did focus on sexually transmitted part and that's a put off for a lot of people. They're now walking it back and saying, but you know, there is also this cancer benefit, which is huge, but it may be a little bit late because it's already out there. And public perception is very hard to turn around. For every successfully vaccinated person, there's no loudspeaker. For any person that has fainted or had a problem with the vaccine, it is in the news. That is a discrepancy that we cannot overcome unless people rise up and realize vaccines have saved us from a lot of things. The doctors right now can't even diagnose measles because they never saw it because it was gone. So there's a delay now in even diagnosing those because it's coming back, obviously, and they've never seen it. I have not seen measles. I mean, someone could walk in front of me with measles and I would have to be thinking. But that is such a virulent organism. It can hang in the air for such a long time. It can spread very easily. And when you want to protect the group, you vaccinate as many people as you can because not everybody can take the vaccination and that protects the ones that can't. So people who are immunocompromised or can't have vaccinations for other reasons, they're exposed more when the group is not vaccinated. Why is the vaccine only approved to age 26? So the vaccine studies, although they did include bigger ages, as it turns out, the immune system is better when you're younger. So you will have a more vigorous response to this vaccine as a younger person than an older person. So the efficacy is lessened every you know decade, decade, decade. And plus, not judging, but somebody who comes in at age 26 or above, the chances that they have not been sexually active and have not been already exposed to the virus is not as high. It works better pre-HPV exposure and in a younger age. And if you want to maximize this efficacy. It's that birth cohort, every age group that goes by that doesn't get it, then yes, you're right. On the other side, they're losing out. But every time we get that age group covered in vaccine, we are lessening it for them as adults. But it's not without any value to get it older. And the group that decides on vaccination policy and recommendations, it's called the ACIP, they are looking at allowing people up to age 45 get this vaccine. And granted, it may be less efficacious to have it at that age, but not without any benefit. So they're going to focus right now on the people that are younger, but there is potential that they may vote to allow people to have it at an older age. I would get it if I could. I still miss the age group again, but I would have gotten it if I would have been able to. The main side effects are fainting and soreness at the arm. Fainting after a vaccine is not a new thing, except for the fact that this is an older age group that gets vaccinated. I think if you're two months old or, or one year old, there's not a lot of fainting maybe that goes on with the vaccine. There's maybe a lot of upset, but not a lot of fainting. But this is an older age group, 11 and 12, seeing a needle, that is upsetting. And so it's not without any negatives, but it's fainting, it's arm soreness, muscle soreness, sometimes fever. There have been lots of reports. Be very careful when you read things. And if you ever have a question about something that you read online or social media wise, that you're not sure, is this true? Is this not true? You bring it to your physician and you ask them about it. So I did some research with the Boys and Girls Club. We tried to get the peers to educate each other 
and see if we could impact vaccination rates in the Boys and Girls Club community. But the stopping point is still that the parents have to consent. You have to be at the pediatrician's office and not everybody goes with their kids. Like sometimes you'll have another person take your kid to the pediatrician's office, which I definitely do. They cannot sign for that. So there's a lot of missed opportunities. You can come in for a cold and the whatnot, but you won't get your vaccine because you're not the primary. But one of the stopping points for the vaccine is that for parents, their provider didn't bring it up. And that's on us then. That is on us. And that is really, really upsetting to me because I'm pro, I'm very pro-vaccine as you can tell. And any opportunity you miss, you don't know if you're gonna have that person back or when. And again, if we say that it's better younger and you miss that opportunity for them, and it's not 100%, it won't be 100%. That's why you try to vaccinate as many people as you can because there's no vaccine that's 100%. You still have to do your pap smears after you get the vaccine. You're not free. As far as screening goes, we can have pap smears done and it can be caught. I have two boys. You said it causes penile and anal cancer, but there's no And oropharyngeal, yeah. There's, there's no, no screening. screening for that. So men Correct. are kind of probably at higher risk. Yes and no. We know that HPV is the causative factor in almost all of cervical cancers. So yes, it's not as 100%. There are other factors that can cause, meaning okay. there's other factors that can cause oropharyngeal cancer and anal cancer, whereas it's like nearly 100% cervix. If you had a dysplasia or cancer, it's HPV. But you could have oropharyngeal, but it may or may not be HPV. There's smoking, there's still other things involved in getting an ear, nose, and throat cancer. You're right that there's no screen for that, but again, if you have the belief in the vaccine working, as many people as we vaccine will still protect those that have an immune system that can't handle it. So as many people as you vaccinate, it protects the whole. So it's still worthwhile. So is there any risk of them getting the vaccine if they've already been in contact with it? Nope. And that's why you can give it to people up to 26. Okay. Because again, it's not that common that you get somebody in their 20s that has not had intercourse. So you can still have exposure. The literature shows that it's less efficacious, but not without any benefit. So up to age 26, males and females should be getting that. So for OBGYNs, I'm not a generalist. I see people after the fact, but I take that opportunity to talk about vaccine for their kids or siblings, you know, for anybody. For pediatricians, it's a very thankless job. It is hard. I get that this is not their focus, but I want it to be. HPV disease is not a kid's disease, right? That's not something they're gonna see. Measles, yes, like those things I can see. If you vaccinate, I'm gonna see a result. I will see less sick kids in the hospital. This is not something they deal with. It is a little bit of a thankless job to ask them to blank, you know, to really promote and do this because you're trying to help future. But it is that it happens to be how it works. So in OBGYN, 18 to 26, they can see those patients. So that's the catch-up phase. If you missed the boat the first time, you can see the OBGYNs and primary care still are kind of responsible for trying to catch the 18 to 26. Do you know how many boys are vaccinated versus girls? Less in the states. So if we say there's about 50, 60% are vaccinated in the states, probably boys are on like the 30 to 40. The girls are a little bit ahead. It's getting better every year. And the best news I had was when I attended the conference, they were saying how even in the states with our kind of not so great rates, viral prevalence is down. So it's going to happen. That was kind of the happy thought for me. It will happen. It will take longer if we're not advocates, but it will happen. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. 
we invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.